0: The Art of Leadership Network.
1: We looked at moms, uh, mothers who have children 18, 18 or under.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you know
1: what they said was their most, we'll start with what the, what they like least about their church. Is no that idea. It, it, is that it doesn't support their emotional and mental health. Wow. That was number one criticism. What do you think they liked most about churches? And it was 63%, not even close to the second highest rated thing, which was like 30,
2: 32%. Yeah, again, I'm clueless. Small groups really moms love community welcome to the carrie newhoff leadership podcast it's carrie here i hope you are enjoying the fresh start we get at the beginning of a new year and we're going to continue with episode two of our 2024 church trend series now Last time, we looked at seven trends that I identified, but moving forward, we're just going to look at what other leaders see. And I've got one of my favorite humans in the world and an exceptional leader and analyst David Kinnaman. On the podcast today, we're going to look at what he sees in terms of trends. Today's episode is brought to you by Westball Gold. What if generosity was a part of the DNA of your church? I produced a new course with Craig Gershell and Chris Hodges and others. You can learn more at advance.westballgold.com or click the link in the description of this episode. And by Rethink, senior leaders and executive pastors. Hey, Rethink Leadership is coming up in April. You can learn more at conference.rethinkleadership.com or again, click the link in the description of this episode. So I've also, for those of you who are following along with the entire Church Trend series, I've got a free team guide available at the link in the description as well. Everything is moving to the link in the description these days. So. There you go. David Kinnaman is back on the podcast. We are going to talk about why 84% of Americans are now spiritually open, why 25% are still deconstructing, why your ministry might want to target women, not men, if you want to reach and keep families, and a whole lot more. David Kinnaman is a co-author of Faith for Exiles, UnChristian, You Lost Me, and Good Faith. He is the president of Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that works with churches, nonprofits, and businesses, ranging from film studios to financial services since 1995. David has directed interviews with more than one million individuals and overseen hundreds of U.S. and global research studies. And uh, David is just one fine human being as well. So I think you're going to really appreciate. This episode. We got, uh, I think, three more episodes in this church trend series because I want to turn it from so many different angles so that you feel prepared for ministry. If you're enjoying this series, please leave a rating and review. And if you would be so kind, share it with someone else that you care about another leader, a friend, your team, or whatever. So, what if generosity was a part of the actual DNA of your church? I partnered with Westfall Gold and leaders like Craig Rochelle and Chris Hodges to create Advance. It's a masterclass video series to help pastors and church leaders grow the courage and the skill to unleash generosity. In the masterclass, you're going to discover how to cast a compelling vision that invites investment, how to make generosity part of the DNA of your church, and how to leverage existing technologies to connect with your givers. And you'll learn a lot more. You can find out everything and get access at Advance dot westfallgold.com or click the link in the description of this episode. And then recently I sat down with my longtime friend Reggie Joyner, an incredible leader I've learned so much from. And we talked about what this year's focus of the Rethink Leadership Conference will be. Here's what Reggie had to say.
1: You know, our our team spends a lot of time wordsmithing and words matter to us. And this year we came up with this phrase, here for it. Uh, here actually talks about proximity or being present. Four is an attitude of advocacy for the next generation, and then it is whatever life throws at us or them. It can be just the general idea of pain, problems, polarities that are existing in our country, theology, but are we showing up for this next generation to help move them in their future? And that's why we think it's so important for leaders to kind of gather in this space together. And so we're asking the question, are you here for it?
2: Man, I'd love for you to join us. And I'm going to be there in person along with some incredible speakers. Rich Velotis and others are going to be there. Go to conference.rethinkleadership.com or click the link in the description of this episode. That's conference.rethinkleadership.com. And now to my conversation with David Kinneman. David, it's great to be back together again. It's good to see you, Carrie. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, we want to talk about trends, and I always look to your data, and I'd love to know, like just right off the top, what's the most surprising thing you're seeing? Because you, you're you studying so many areas, and there must be once in a while where your eyeballs just pop. at something you're looking at right now. So what would that be for you as we open a new year?
1: I think uh, this spiritual openness trend is so significant. We find that three out of four Americans say that they're spiritually open Uh, That they want to grow spiritually. 44% say that they're more open to God today than they were before the pandemic. And that's even higher among younger people, millennials and Gen Z, more than half, 60% of uh, Gen Zers, they say they're more interested in God today than they were before the pandemic. And we've been sort of scratching the surface on this about a, a year or so. Um, And even now, we have even additional data to suggest that as many as 84% of Americans are spiritually open in some way. They believe the possibility that God exists. They're open to growing spiritually. Hmm. And that just sort of flies in the face of what we tend to think of in terms of a a secular time or, you know, people just don't believe anymore. Uh, Now, they're open to anything and a little bit of everything. And we actually did a big study globally with teenagers uh, we looked at, at nearly 25,000 interviews in 26 countries, talking to teens uh, in all these global contexts, uh, 14 different languages. And we ended up calling that the open generation because mm-hmm. they were so open to things that we were sort of expecting them to be closed to. So I think that's been a really interesting and surprising finding Um you know, you'll remember the early days of the pandemic. We sort of imagined that you know there might be a real kind of surge in spirituality. Pastors were almost like, "Hey, guys, it's it's happening. It's happening." You yeah. know, uh, we don't want to do digital church, but there, there's openness. People that might be open, and it really took a while, uh, I think, for that to kind of to, to, to show up in a, in the social research. But um, it's happening. There's some openness now, and I think that should be really cause for for a lot of um, just rethinking how we communicate. The gospel and how we think about our ministry. It, like I said they're open. People are open to a lot of things. They're open to you know Jesus, but they're open to a lot of other things as well. And th- that's been a really fun uh, thing to track for the last year, year and a half.
2: So I want to break that down a little bit because you can look at all of the trends and all of the stats. I mean Pew Research and other organizations like that. Some big studies are showing the rise of the nuns, right? Like people with no religion keeps going up. And I think the easy, I mean, I feel like America is now living out my childhood. I watched Canada become rapidly post-Christian as a teenager. And maybe it was happening when I was a kid, like back in the seventies or whatever. But, you know, I see that happening now in the United States. And what is really interesting is it's very easy as a person of faith to say, oh, because everyone's leaving the church, people are deconverting, people say they have no religion, they're all atheists and agnostics. But that's not actually the case. That's not what the data is showing. Is that right?
1: That's correct. And if this is one of the things that I think is so important for us as Christian leaders to marinate in, mm-hmm. which is we we still live with the long shadows of Christianity in North America, even in Canada, where it's more secular than, than than the U.S. It's it's still a, a, a lot of uh, backstory of Christian Belief and and activity, and actually the Pew data. I don't tend to speak for other data, and it's not no, my sure. place to do that. But I, but I I'm quite certain that the the rise of the nuns has sort of um, plateaued a bit. The last I saw, the last year or two, and it's not that that isn't still a factor. It's just that if you if you double click even on many of those people who are nuns, they say they're spiritually open or they believe that the possibility that there is a supernatural uh, dimension to life exists. So a lot of this is how we measure spirituality. And I think if we kind of zoom out on where we sit today, um, you know, in the beginning of 2024, we're sort of looking ahead, looking back towards, you know, where have we been? This is another election year in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, goodness gracious. (laughs) Here we go again. Can can we survive another one? Um, But I actually think that for those of us in social research, we're actually looking at, do we track, are we tracking things in the right way? Do our questions, which were largely developed fifty years ago, uh, George Barna started uh, the Barna Group in in nineteen eighty four. So we're on our we're, this is our fortieth anniversary, and and uh, Gallup was was interesting was doing social research you know, you know for for, for many years, decades before that, but they had just a couple questions they would ask on religion, and. And so I think a good question for us to ask is, are we really reading the signs of the times accurately? Do our questions Mm -hmm. really portray what is happening in people's lives? And I think that's what's been kind of exciting about the Spiritual Open Project is because it has given us perhaps another way of scratching at the surface of the kinds of things that are happening for people spiritually. And we just maybe haven't had the metrics to, to look at that before.
2: So it's interesting, you know, I don't know why, because I've looked at that data and even written on some of your data on the open generation, but it just hit me, you know, if you look at the big five personality traits of psychology, and again, I'm not a psychological expert, but one of them is openness versus closed, right? Do you have a closed worldview? Do you have an open worldview? What's really interesting, I mean, you think about me born in the 60s, you're born in the 70s, but we didn't have access to information when we were a kid. Your parents' worldview was likely to be your worldview. And I'm just thinking about like even seeing my kids who are 90s children grow up. And when YouTube came along and early social media came along, I noticed the questions they asked of me dropped because they were just getting answers everywhere. And now you look at everything from career paralysis to for young leaders, it's like, you know, I didn't know what options I had. It was like, well, I heard lawyers are a good job, you know. I don't know. You you just talk to your parents or your parents' friends or people at school. Now, you know, it's the same thing with dating. You have an infinite sea of options. So how do I know which is the right one for me? Whereas I met my wife in school. So I wonder if openness has something to do with worldview. Any thoughts on that? And then I want to chase that rabbit a little bit further until. Uh, until there's nothing left. Because I think, I think this is a really interesting drill down on that. Um, what about like, is that an overall, and you can use anecdotal like stuff too. I know we don't have a research for everything, but like, you know, is that just a personality trait of younger generations because they were raised with infinite access to information that they're just open. I'm going to travel. I'm going to see this. I'm going to try different things. I'm not going to eat the food I was raised on. I'm going to open up my mind beyond the religion I was trained on or raised in. Etc. What do you see? Uh,
1: I think you're you're nailing it on the head, which okay. is which is that technology has changed our uh, access to a variety of different ideas. I call it the gospel according to YouTube yep. or the gospel according to TikTok. Yeah. And um, you know, we've we've actually done quite a bit of of social research on this, looking at how do people inherit their views of Jesus. Let's say, and and you know, in the past, you had a more binary decision to make, and we'll use some sort of broad generalizations here but you'll you'll follow the the logic of it in the past you sort of were like do i want to inherit the faith of my parents or grandparents
2: yep
1: or do i want to do what I'll, uh, like you, you it's like or not you know mm-hmm. it's sort of like one and zero you know it's like yes or no um black or white uh and and now what i think is true is we see this in in uh, our research with gen z especially that they are picking and pulling from a variety of different ideas and sources and and the persuasive power of you know, like what my parents or grandparents believed is is quickly fading, and we see this in lots of different examples. Um, it doesn't just even have to be about faith, but it's sort of like there is this sense in which you know, sort of following the footsteps of your parents can feel very prosaic and very um, boring. And another way to think about this, you know, we've talked a little bit on some of our our podcasts and our times together yeah. about digital Babylon, yeah, and and that's a concept that you know that we've written about and studied and if you look at if you look at daniel in the old in the old testament um that babylon for him coming from from the hebrew community to babylon he had a greater level of access um a greater question of authority and uh, sort of sort of alienation from sort of his 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 people his community and i think that story of daniel is so compelling because we Often underestimate how difficult it would have been to to, to be in, but not of Babylon. Um, hmm. So he he is renamed Belteshazzar. He it becomes a, a third highest ranking official in Babylon. He serves for three different regimes: Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar, and Darius. His story is a really profound one, um, and. We, we, I wouldn't have recognized him as a Hebrew in, in most ways, except for his prayer life, except for certain mm-hmm. ways that he sort of said, hey, th- th- this one thing I won't compromise. But because of that, when we look then at, at today's context, that's why I've described it as digital Babylon, because we have greater level of access, greater skepticism of authority, and greater alienation from the communities that form us. So a young person goes to bed at night Instead of being sort of read to by their parents, you know they're comforted by the warm glow of their smartphone, right. and and they're they're entering rabbit holes, which are which are wonderful domains of human inquiry and ideas and, belie- and beliefs and, and questions, and and that's part of what we have to sort of imagine. So you you think about the the role of a local church, and this is one of my. Recommendations. Then, if we'd like, okay, what do we? How do we make this really practical? We have to acknowledge that the people in our in our churches are living in all these domains, these rabbit holes. The gospel according to YouTube, according to you know TikTok, and, and we could say more about the power of a persuasive community and what we could do. But how how can we become curators of gospel content? How do we help them understand a map to the treasure that is Jesus in our world? and recognizing that hey you know your parents and grandparents jesus might have been just as constrained uh, as as you know the, the reason you're trying to break jesus out of that box is because you should but mm-hmm. but he's not everything he's got to be something in your life and um and so i think there's a, a real a real power that we have as as church communities to sort of think about what does it look like to do discipleship in this digital age so uh, i think you're on to something like we're 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 trying to you know, it's almost like you're going from flying uh, biplanes or, you know, bicycle travel to now being in a jet fighter of all of this information coming at you so quickly. And you've got to read and respond to the environment so quickly. That's just even a, a poor analogy, but just mm-hmm. it speaks to the speed with which people are living their lives and trying to take in information and respond to the world around them.
2: So I haven't really had this thought until right now. We're moving into editorial. But uh, last year, I worked through Tom Holland's tome, um, Dominion, The Shaping of the Western Mind, and it was a work through. I mean, that, that that is dense, dense, dense material. But I'm thinking about what's happening now. I'm also thinking about the Enlightenment. So you look at human history. You come through the Dark Ages. You go through the Renaissance. Then you move on to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, in many ways, was the sharing of information made possible by the connection you saw in Europe, by the, you know, sophistication of the printing press as it really developed over the centuries. And at first it was used to spread Christianity. And then somebody, you know, people like Voltaire, et cetera, kind of asking questions about, well, you know, what is this about God or are all religions equal? And you get Kant philosophizing about it, et cetera, et cetera. So you're in the era of enlightenment and I wonder, I would hesitate to call us enlightened at this moment in human history. I'm not sure we're getting smarter. I'm not sure we're getting more intelligent. But it was that access to information. And I wonder if what's happening, if it feels to the next generation, like this is a new era of enlightenment. My parents had a very closed view. The church was very closed. It was a very closed system. And I mean, that was the heart of Protestantism, as the Roman Catholic Church was closed. Now, they're taking it into Buddhism and Baha'i and made-up religions, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder if that kind of access to information is, is in fact, a de facto, like new enlightenment. I don't know what your thought is on that. That was a new thought.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's a really good observation. Mm. And, um, um, we'll do maybe one more act of historical thinking and then move into some other practical stuff. Sure. But <clears throat> I had a chance to visit London a couple of weeks ago, probably mm-hmm. my favorite city in the world. Um, and, uh, about twenty years before before I got to go to Istanbul, which used to be Constantinople, and mm-hmm. I, I traveled there with my dad. And um, m- many people may not realize, but Constantinople, the Roman Empire, was moved from Rome to Constantinople mm-hmm. uh, roughly in the year four four hundred in the four hundreds, uh, and then uh, it was sacked by the Ottomans in fourteen hundred. Which means for about a thousand years, with you know the rise of the Byzantine Empire and all sorts of other parts of human history. That are just sort of glossed over and, and even in my mind, um, like it was a it was one of the most powerful cities in the world. And mm-hmm. of course, the Middle East has been uh you know the, the cradle of civilization, et cetera. So even before that, um th- this is this is the case. So modern-day Turkey, you know, could could say we were we were sort of the 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 the, the uh the place, the crossroads of humanity in, mm-hmm. in Constantinople and then became Istanbul. Fast forward to London and uh, many of the cities of Europe. And um, you could say that London was one of the most significant cities for, uh, for for several centuries, at least. And of course, English is spoken around the world. Um, of course, I speak English, so I don't want to have just like a an, an anglophile centric view of the world. But you know, England and uh, and its way of its military, its economic power, its way of thinking about governance, the Commonwealth, uh, lots and lots of human history sort of came and went. In fact, when you go to London, you sort of see how all of these ideas of the world were sort of brought back even you go to the british museum and you know there's quite a bit of controversy because even some of the great artifacts of these other civilizations were sort of brought back to london like ants bringing things back to the anthill so so then you think about american history and the east coast and washington dc and boston and and the the, the revolution and then the american century which was the 1900s and we came uh, came and sort of saved civilization such as it is, such if, if that was worth saving, and, and we think it was, um, World War I, World War II, and then the rise of technology and, and, sp- and space and, and military power. And, and so here's the end of this little <laughs> exercise in historical thinking, which is, I actually believe we are at a really critical inflection point where some of the powers of the old way of thinking, which is military, uh, government- uh, fin- financial, they're still important. They're mm-hmm. not completely buried. Of course, it matters which which governments, which companies have money. Um, but we're now in what I call the the TED era: technology, entertainment, and design. They are the persuasive powers of our day. Mm. So, technology, entertainment, and design yep. is that, that's what TED conference, the TED talks were actually mm-hmm. based based on those three three initials. Uh, some people don't know that, and and I actually think we're in an interesting inflection point where. Part of what we're seeing, why we're talking about how we inherit ideas, is that it doesn't really matter what our established leaders, such as such as political uh, clergy, university professors. I mean, we 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 they're 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 just one voice in a chorus of voices, but we tend to believe these these algorithms which seem to know us better than we know ourselves. It's frightening. And, mm-hmm. and, and so the West Coast, you know, sort of like the capital of humanity is sort of, you know, become California, Silicon Valley, technology companies obviously pop up all over and, and they're in London and they're, you know, um, in Toronto and they're mm-hmm. in Sydney and other places. Um, and, and of course, you know China and, and other places. But I think there's this really interesting moment for us as, as leaders to think about what does it mean to be faithful in a new era, and how do we think about the persuasive powers of our time? And and what like why is video more persuasive than the written word? And it's not that the written it's, it's not that the written word won't matter, but why do people sort of tend to sort of take in content that way? And we're in this really interesting inflection point where. I think people are really persuaded by those kinds of those kinds of TED values. And so how do we as the church live faithfully in the midst of that? You know, we're great communicators. How do we think about digital content? How do we think about helping people to curate all of these digital uh spaces in their lives? How do we help them? How do we as the church community even more to the point become even more personal than the algorithms where we know people even better than they know themselves because the Holy Spirit helps us to help give them a, a decoder ring for the masterpiece they've been created to be. Mm. So I think there's some real, in this era of spiritual openness, we have a, a chance of uh, com- coming coming to this uh, this work with a bit of a blank slate and say, okay, well, how can we actually help people You know, really understand what it means to live as humans, uh, flourishing humans in this very co- complex age that we live in? And that's going to require our our uh, uh, ability to adapt as persuasive communities. And I think we're at the front edge of really trying to imagine what that might be.
2: Well, I think one of the challenges with the church, if society has become generally more open, which I think you've you've demonstrated statistically, anecdotally, it seems to me like not all of the church, but some of the church's responses become more closed. In other words, here's what's certain, here's what's clear. Uh, this is bad. We're good. Almost back to the binary thinking you talked about, you know, that that sort of uh, governed worldviews. Um, any thoughts on what is a helpful posture when you're dealing with an open generation? Because we've certainly seen, you know, if you've got clarity and certainty and absolute, that's going to attract a certain subculture of the population but i'm not sure it's really going to penetrate the secular mindset any thoughts on that
1: well i do think that some of the churches that are growing are providing a sort of sense of certainty in a sea of uncertainty mm-hmm. and they're they're doing so not with um you know sort of pulpit pounding and and sort of short you know sort of bumper stickers but they really are saying if if we're going to be a different kind of people in this world. We have to have a different kind of set of convictions. Like we have to look at Daniel and say, yeah. we are going to be people of prayer in a world that says, if you do this, you're going to get your head cut off. And uh, and it says, all right, well, we're going to keep doing it. And so I think there is something about, um, I want to resist the same kind of binary thinking we were talking about, which is that I don't think it's to respond to a sea of uncertainty with just more uncertainty. I do think that people need to be taught how to think how to think, how to respond. There are different learning styles. Um, we have better tools available to us to try to help understand who people are, and and again, to be really practical, um, if if we if we um, could organize our ministries around really knowing people, there are a, a ton of great resources to you know whether it's the Enneagram or the Myers Briggs or the Strengths Finder. Uh, you, you know, a, a, a group we've worked with called True Center, where you look at people's motivations, spiritual gifts, you know, and I actually think Christian communities could be places where we really sit down with, especially young people, but anyone at any stage of life could be like, hey, we want to try to help map. What are your gifts? What are the gifts you have to give? How will you contribute to the mission of God in, in the world? And it's not just to come be, be a volunteer for the church or just to be a donor to the church. But we're a community to help you figure out how God has 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 made you, and we're gonna we're gonna try to know you and help you know yourself so that you can be on mission with Jesus in the world. Can we give people a real sense that ministry is going to be very personal to who they are, and then it's on the basis of that? And we can do this in small groups. We can we can do this in a lot of different ways. I think youth ministries and children's ministries could actually be re. Organized around kind of helping to coach people into understanding who they are in Christ. You look at Second Timothy one, where Paul says, "Timothy, we we recognize your family background. You know, you have the same faith that your mother and your your grandmother had. We know that same beating heart is in you, and we're gonna we're gonna fan into flames the spiritual gifts that we identified in you. And then we're gonna say we're gonna release you and say, God has not given us a spirit of anxiety of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. That is a perfect little model." Of how we could think about the gift developments of people around us by saying we're going to help you remember where you came from, we're going to let, let you know who you are, we're going to help release you into into the world to be a non anxious presence. You know the, the Mark mm-hmm. Sayer's phrase. Um, it actually comes from uh, from Fried from Friedman. Yeah. yeah. But um, but this notion of like, can we help create people who are a non anxious presence? So that's a kind of certainty mm-hmm. in an uncertain world. It's a kind of like, hey, you know what? come what may, I know who I am, even if I have money, even if I have health, if, even if I don't. Um, and I actually think those are the kinds of of discipling activities that this generation is just absolutely desperate for. And we're really seeing, you know, c- across the board, these little signs of life. I mean, Bible sales are up uh, 27% in, in North America. I didn't know um, that. Yeah. People are, you know, you see, you see the Asbury revival that happened just about a year ago. You see Stu- student led movements you see the sort of hunger for a deeper way of living of understanding like oh, you know we we can't just sort of keep spinning out of control this question of how do we rise to the level of the challenges that our society has whether it's corruption or 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 climate issues or you, you know um uh the political landscape which we which we sort of laughed about earlier so you know i actually think i'm, I'm extremely hopeful about mm. The future of ministry, I want to instill in our listeners, as we look at the data, like if there's one central point of this conversation, it's like, have hope, have courage. Uh, You can and are making a difference. And it just requires us to be really thinking a little bit different methodologically about how we take this unchanging gospel into a new generation.
2: You said something and glanced off it that I want to come back to because I think it's, it's, it's a really important paradigm. You talked about teaching people how to think. So I see, well, there's probably multiple modes of this, but there's sort of the dichotomy between teaching people how to think or teaching people what to think. When you think about the open generation and people who maybe don't attend church, the people we're trying to reach, is there one approach that you think probably merits more attention, like what to think or how to think?
1: Um, I think it's a both-and world. Um, You know, for for example, we're... In, in some cases, people need to be shown, you know, what to think about these things. Mm. We we talked about, you, you mentioned it briefly, you talked about dating. Um, human relationships are, are very different than they were when you had sort of binary choices. I'm sitting next to someone in class, I'm interested in her, she's interested in me, I might ask her out. Uh, you know, it's like all the proximity was limited to the, the physical proximity you had, Those that was who you could meet. And in the online world there, you could literally meet anyone that the algorithm might serve up. And and I actually think we need a richer theology of relationships and of singleness and of marriage and of dating. And and we need to show people kind of what to think, what what they can do to navigate that. And then I also think there's a level of how to think. We, we give them the tools so that they're able to say, you know, I think there's a principle that's being applied here in terms of what what is the purpose of marriage and and what is the purpose of romantic relationships and what's the purpose of friendship and what's the purpose of children what's the theology of the body and how we think about those things and in in my research it is crystal clear that the vast majority of young people and and of just human beings are more willing to be challenged than we are willing to challenge them mm. and we. We've, like
2: open to a challenge of their worldview or what they think, or or ope, what are you ope, say?
1: Open to a uh, a pathway that requires more of them than we sometimes mm. imagine, mm. and 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 really, maybe the other way to say it is that the, sometimes pastors, you know, it's it's been easy. Church Pulse Weekly, when we hosted that, you know, pastors mm. have been telling us uh, for a while like how hard it was to get people to to, to volunteer, or yes. you know, I mean, the pandemic, what a what a absolute, you know. Disaster and also this gifts came from it too, mm-hmm. um, but it's hard. Sometimes you'll say, "Okay, well, we we try to ask people to do things, but then they just sort of bug out." But I would say that the kinds of things that we ask people to do that are hard for them to do actually produce certain kinds of fruit in them spiritually. That are, is really the end game of what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. Like, so so by making the bar, you know, Jesus sort of like, wide is the the path towards destruction, but narrow is the gate to life. And I think there's some we have to have a little more narrow gate thinking, and not about like just moral rules, like you have got to do these things to, to be good enough to be a part of our community. But there is a there is a set of activities that people. You, you look at how how apps or gamified content uh, keeps people moving along a path because hmm. they want to keep in, embracing some of this. And so we have to have, I think, this this a theology of Get, of, of, of helping people move along in life to earn a sort of way of thinking about this, I'll, I'll give you a good mm-hmm. example. Um, in the early church, a friend of mine, John Dixon, we've been we've been talking a bit about this. Um, he's a, a church historian, and he was saying that in the early church, there's really good evidence that people before they were baptized had to have 140 plus hours of catechism before they were baptized. Now, some part of this was because mm. the persecution was so significant that you couldn't just have any old person, you know, any old Joe. No offenses to to, to Joe or Joe Jen, <laughs> Joe Joe Jensen on my team or, or anyone Joe else. From Barna. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Joe, thanks for listening. Um, we love Joe. Um, any you can't just have any old Joe come and join because they might be they might be a spy. They might be an undercover person right. who's, who's going to try to infiltrate.
2: Forty c- hours of catechesis should do that. For well,
1: it, it. should it, because then you you actually gave the content. Its chance of actually doing the work, even if it was, mm. a, even if it was a persecutor, uh, the whole idea was people were being transformed by the way of thinking that required them to see the world through the lens of the Old Testament, the life and teachings of Jesus, and and what mm. and you know sort of the wisdom literature, like they, like they literally taught people. And this was again, this is kind of hard for me to. I, I've asked John Dixon uh, uh, probably ten times, like before baptism. And he's like, yeah, before baptism. Hmm. I, I think I, I think I you m- maybe you, you meant after baptism. No, before people were able to be baptized, before we would let them be called a Christian, uh, they had to go through this sort of narrow gate thinking because you had to understand the house that you were about to move into. Hmm. And this is like to me like a, a like a, a revelation of of like a, what if we tried to apply I mean, totally different cultural context than the persecution mm-hmm. that the early church was under. But we have to have that same kind of imagination of asking people to take a journey with us. And will the typical church-going child or, or teenager spend 140 hours over the course of their life in church? They'll spend much more than that. So it's actually not that difficult an ask. But you have to have a scope and sequence to how people could learn <clears throat> what it is to be Christian. And then they mm-hmm. can reject that or, or accept it. But it, it's very different than, in my view, the kind of spaghetti on the wall approach. And, right. and we, we don't have something sticks. Yeah, we don't have the kind of catechism, catechisms for our time that I think are required. And, and, and so, you know, I, I think um, I'm, I'm just like so excited about the future of how Christian leaders and communicators and Christian communities can reimagine this role of being a persuasive community. Because like it's it's not rocket science. It is actually just human development and we are doing good work in so many quarters. But it's going to require some imagination to think a little bit differently because coupled with the hope that I have and encouragement that I want to give leaders is this brutal reality that it's a lot harder than you realize to disciple people because these algorithms and digital Babylon and trying to help like to convince your kid, you know, that this is really true like it's it's not working in the same way you can't just stare them in the eye and earnestly say this is really true are are you going to believe it or not hmm. and because they have to be persuaded on their own and we want them we want the holy spirit to do that work in their lives so i just i think we're at this really important space of recognizing that the persuasive power of our time is is shifting away from the stages it's shifting away from the le- the, the sort of the established leaders it's shifting into the testimony of lay people, um, you know, Revelation twelve eleven says we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. And actually, there's actually spiritual power in hearing other people's stories. That's another great example of how we as Christian communities can become even more persuasive. Is letting people who aren't paid professionals tell their story, because then younger generations and all of us can sort of st- stand back in awe of what God does in people's lives and how people experience God. And and again. There is a real resistance that I am seeing in the research to the professionalization of ministry, where it's like, well, you're paid. You're paid to be a Christian communicator. You're paid to be a pastor. You're paid to be a Christian researcher. So we're
2: conflicted. So it almost it almost what undermines your credibility. Correct. In other words, this is what you're supposed to say.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And And if you
2: don't say it, you don't get paid.
1: And if we're being honest, Carrie, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I know I've wrestled with this question before, Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. like, what does it mean to be a professional? Who is a Christian, or whose, whose Christian faith also has to be a bit on display? I mean, I've had to talk about the loss of my wife mm-hmm. to cancer, mm-hmm. Jill. I've had to talk about, you know, what it means to lead in a complex world. You know, I've had to talk about the the faith journeys of of people who've lost their faith. Uh, you know, through through the research. I mean, I've had and I've got lot, lots and friends, mm-hmm. lots of friends, lots of family who've been in their own journey. And we, when I we talk to, to people who are you know, on their own journey of like, you know, it's like so often at a conference, I'll talk about passing on the faith to the next generation and the research that I've done on that, and parents and grandparents and others will come up. And they're like, "Man, you're talking, you're-, you're reading my mail. You're talking about my kids," and I'm like, "Yeah, there's there's a reason. It's like all the all the gates are down. All the the walls have been broken down. It is a it is a it is a battle for the hearts and minds of a generation because these p- persuasive tools, you know, like the things that we thought were persuading people." Uh, aren't aren't getting to the heart of, of what they think. Now again, at the same time, the the faith and vibrancy of what God is doing in young people is profound and and it's like these these things can be both true at the same time. like there's a, a type of openness and a kind of almost like a I always hesitate to use this term, but a kind of revival that seems to be breaking out in certain yeah, in certain places. Yeah. yeah and so like let's let's keep fanning into flames those 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 places of spiritual vitality. Uh, but but this it requires a, a fun and I think a, a new wineskin thinking because we can imagine that the church can reclaim its credibility in in powerful ways. and 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 one good example of this just super practically speaking, we see this over and over and over is as a professional Christian, if you get your paycheck from an organization that is uh, that is oriented around a faith mission of a local church, a Christian uh, business or, or nonprofit, Those in your family don't quite understand what it is you do.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and it's It's only an hour on Sunday. What do you do? Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. And and so if that's true, we have to also say, like, okay, we're kind of a we're kind of a marketing team for we're kind of a multi-level marketing team. Like we, we hear from the skeptics, like we are researching people all the time who are like, Hey, that youth pastor was paid to be my friend. Uh, that that you know that person. So so we're conflicted, and if we if we at least acknowledge that, it doesn't mean we have to give up our jobs and our paychecks if we're called to this ministry. Right? Paul says a you, you know, person should be paid for for working, and he actually. But he goes through several instances in the, in the New Testament. You'll remember where he'll say, say things like, "Now I didn't ask you for any money, so that you wouldn't see me as conflicted. I found my own way to pay." And I, so I think he's addressing some of these things. So I'm just acknowledging that in an era of at the center of what I want to just sort of say to, to, to our listeners today is like, we have to think about being a persuasive community in new and fresh ways.
2: So are you saying professional clergy might be a thing of the past?
1: No, I've, I'm saying they'll be an important part of the future, but they will be, their role will be curators and their role will be helping to t- other people to tell their stories better. Gotcha. And they, a, a, an, an effective professional ministry and clergy will mean that we have to say, I'm I'm a little conflicted because you know I I I'm asking you for money and I think there's ways even in the political space um you know some of my best friends who are pastors are saying it's really hard to disciple people who are also big contributors to your to your organization and cuz then they they can't help but think kind of in a business transaction uh with if I
2: challenge you too hard are yeah. you know withdraw your yeah. giving so
1: yeah. I don't think those are broken systems but they have to be re-engineered they have to be mm-hmm. thought of we have to acknowledge what that might look like <clears throat> um as we think about sort of the persuasiveness the credibility that that we have and then at the core of this mm-hmm. you know my friend Glenn Packham is was is talking about sort of being creedal Christians we regain credibility by being Creedal and and true to the creeds. So at the heart of being credible is is believing, really believing what we what we have have uh, have signed up for. What we're what we believe, right? Like re- really, like this is the this is the way <laughs> to use a Mandalorian phrase. But at, there are all these other ways to imagine. Could we r- more regularly feature testimonies from people on our Sunday morning worship services? Of lay people, a, a brief interview of something God is doing in your life. How are you she- seeing God showing up? How are you hearing from the Lord? Um, there's a, a lot. One of the one of the coolest uh, findings um, we'll be actually talking about this in the next couple months. But um, one of the coolest findings from our research is that the resilient disciples say that they hear from God. and They've experienced the reality of God being alive in their in their life, and and habitual churchgoers and others who've walked away from faith. Are much less likely to say they believe God speaks in a way that's personal to them. Hmm. So, if we could simply amplify the number of ways we tell people, "Here is how God is speaking. Here is how He's speaking to me. How is He speaking to you?" And again, I think professional clergy are essential to that, okay. but they're not the only people who can say it. And we just have to admit that they have they have um, so- something that 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 hear, hearers, listeners, those in the congregation are like, well, aren't you supposed to say that? And that, aren't you just paid to do that? And so if we could say, well, I believe this and let's hear, you know, let's hear from some friends, right? Tiffany and Jeff or, or you know, Ed and Diane, whoever, like, how is God speaking to you right now? And, and what, t- tell me about this miracle of what happened. And, and when we start to, t- you know, we, we overcome by what Jesus did And the word of our testimony, like there is actual spiritual power to people's stories.
2: So everything we've discussed so far is dizzying and we've got a lot more to discuss, but I remember some research that came out that you've written about, I've written about. From 2020 to 2022, the state of pastoral health just took a deep dive. I mean, up to 42% of pastors seriously thinking about leaving ministry, not just their calling Their emotional health, spiritual health, the number of friends that pastors had. I mean, everything just, I think we called it a five alarm fire in some of the projects we worked on together. Where is that sitting now as a new year opens? And what are you seeing in the state of pastoral health? Any update on that front? Well,
1: the uh, the five alarm fire has gone down to maybe a, a three alarm fire. Okay. It's it's still there's still some flashing yellow lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not probably the the, the the red lights that we saw um, you know two years ago. Um, it's down now into the into the low thirties. The percent who say they want to quit. Oh okay. um so it's it has it has subsided but it's still a third of
2: us but but remember some people have self selected out now right like of that 42% yeah, number of them left the yeah. number of leaders i talk to now can you believe the pandemic's 4 years ago that's crazy that man. is crazy yeah but who are like yeah we have a whole new team yeah. running sometimes it's new senior leader other times it's like yeah a lot of the other team just kind of tapped out we got a new team we're running so you're seeing it as a three-alarm fire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's
1: a fair fair statement. Um, but it, it, I think, invites us into a new journey about past pastoring. And I have, you know, such a a, a huge heart. Um, at, and, and the team at Barna, we, we're doing a Resilient Pastor yeah. initiative with with yeah. Glenn Packiam and and other really um, c- c- caring, godly people who want to see pastors' hearts and souls sort of revived for this next stage mm-hmm. of the journey. Um, and it is a set of concerning findings, just to to spend just a half a minute on that, like pastors under the age of 45, ethnic minority leaders, mm-hmm. um, w- leaders who are gifted in strategic thinking, and those who are struggling to build trust with their congregants um, were some of the most likely to to want to quit. And so um, even like the notion that those who are gifted in strategic thinking, they're just like, hey, I, I can't, I can't keep moving forward in a in an environment where it's just it, c- it cannot be transformed right so um i think i think the kinds of leaders who are who are really feeling the pressure we still have a lot of work to do because yeah i want to say in no uncertain terms the the, the role of pastors are so essential to the, the vitality of the church it's mm-hmm. it's i mean you can't have one without the other it's just shifting and and we have to sort of recognize even some of the themes that we've been talking about, so we, we've actually got sort of a number of recommendations for how we think about, um, you know, rev- reviving and, and supporting leaders. Number one is just recognizing that, you know, be as healthy as you can as a leader. You know, cultivate deep mutual friendship, invest in family, uh, uh, whatever brings you fun and sort of reminds you of how small you are in the world. Uh, exercising, gardening, hiking, traveling, reading for pleasure, uh, anything that reminds us that our lives are so short. Um, can help us just sort of stay in the game. Mm. Um, that for me, you know, three three plus years of bereavement, it's just like I've had a lot of fun. I've just I've hiked, I've done drawing, I've done things that just have no real like productivity to them, and that's been critical to me. I think second, we also have to retool for the next stage of ministry and recognize that this next season is going to require agility, a kind of openness uh, to you know not controlling things. Uh, some of the themes we've talked about. How can you become a, um, a, a a curator of a persuasive community? And and you're not the only person on on stage. You're not the only person who is a, a, a who can testify to the power of Jesus in our mm. in our lives. That's the, that's the headline from what we've been talking about. And then finally, it's this um, sharing the load. You know, it's I I think the the more we can actually have um, team members, laity, all sort of. You know, not on the sidelines watching us do the work, but actually, you know, like you're, you're a coach. You're you're getting people into the game and, and playing. You're identifying gifts and, and talents. You're helping them understand like how God has made them to be a masterpiece in Christ Jesus, uh, and getting them to use those gifts and giftedness out in the world and celebrating them for that. I, I think we're gonna have a really beautiful season of ministry. The more we can become those kind of healthy leaders who look to to to, to center others and center Jesus at at the uh, at the middle of all that.
0: What has kept
2: you resilient? You have been through a personal journey, you know, Barna, how long have you been president now? 17 Uh, years, 16 years?
1: About uh, 2007 was when I was named president. And then I, I, yeah, Yeah. took over the company more officially in 2009. So it's been coming on 15 years. Wow.
2: So, I mean, you've had to reinvent, you've had to rethink, you've been through a pandemic too, and a lot of things changed. What's keeping you resilient personally? And through Jill's passing, yeah, uh,
1: my friendships number one. Um, uh, Just so many amazing people that I just I love. Uh, I was driving across Dallas last night to see my friend Scott, and I just was like I I was uh, feeling the surge of gratefulness for him. And we sat down, gave each other a huge hug, and uh, then other friends surprised me, uh, and that was that was a a, (laughs) that was a great a great.
2: Some of us came in for a surprise. Yeah, that was fun.
1: So you know friendships are really cool so yeah. and 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 integral to being a single person in a way that i think for those who are listening who are married it's not that you don't need friends you absolutely do need friends but there is something about being partnered in life that's different than when you're single and that's one thing i could sort of say to our listeners is like some of the lessons that i'm learning are are different because as a widower i'm having to think about you know, being a single dad, uh, you know, running a company on my own, making making plans, I've got a great team around me, but, you know, there's still decisions to make and sort of like, you got to kind of like, okay, look at the mirror, like, what do I want to do right now? I've had an incredible spiritual director, uh, Dwayne Grobman, uh, for a number of years, six, six seven years now, walking through brain cancer and and death and bereavement uh, and, and leadership and just like, where is God showing up in my life? And so li- listening to the Lord... Um, you know the scriptures have come alive to me in new ways in this season. Uh, but but then in you know in addition to friendship and just the friendship of God in all of this has been you know a lot of physical activity and working out and mm. and hiking and and I've got some physical limitations. I, I can't run anymore because of a lower back problem. But like I'm finding other ways to, to redirect that energy. You know just having fun doing do, you know c- collecting art and you know sort of uh outfitting my townhouse and enjoying sort of new things i i moved from california to texas about a year and a half ago and even that sort of like forcing myself to learn some new rhythms and new new ways of thinking and you know sort of imagining you know what this next stage of of life and leadership and ministry might look like has been has been a lot of journaling a lot of writing some drawing you know just like enjoying enjoying life for what it gives and um there aren't too many benefits of losing someone to cancer, but one of them is you realize how short life is. And so you're just like every meal, every every day is a gift. Like really, Jesus' mercies are new every day. And I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm finding a way to experience that in a tangible way that I can't quite even put words to.
2: What I'm hearing underneath a lot of that is high intentionality. I think sometimes, you know, I've been through seasons. One of my goals at this point in my life is to try something new every year, like maybe adopt something new in in the quiver or whatever, because it's so easy to, and obviously your your life disrupted in ways nobody would ever hope for or plan for. Uh, But it seems like you've been really, really intentional in that. Any word to leaders who are sort of stuck in a rut, maybe in that 32% who are still thinking, eh, I don't really know. Like talk about how intentional you have had to be to find that life, because I'm not sure it just comes automatically.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you asking. Um, well, I first wanted to just again acknowledge that I've had a lot of good friends and and input.
2: Yeah, but friendship is two ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like you, you would have to have taken the initiative on some of those. Yeah, relationships. that's right. Um, and you're great at that with me. You'll yeah. reach out. Yes. You'll send me a video. You'll send me a text if we haven't talked in a little while. Like you're you're a great initiator.
1: In yeah, thanks, Gary. I appreciate that. Well, you're a true friend. Um, uh, I I think I think there's. I think there's something that has been interesting around, um, yeah, just just deciding how I want to live in this season. Andy Crouch, uh, one of my friends, uh, said something really interesting um, a few years ago that I really took to heart. And he said, you know, a lot of us sort of save up our retirement years to go travel the world and do things and think thoughts and, and enjoy life. And, um, you know, you know I, I took these last few years as a, t- as a time. I mean, I, I worked and I worked pretty hard but I also took it as a kind of early uh withdrawal on retirement and it was bereavement and it was sort of sabbatical and it was like hey, if I want to travel to go do something I I want to do that I try to invest in my kids just you know cheering them on you know 24 22 and 19 so that a really interesting stage of life but yeah I think intentionality is really critical and when you really immerse yourself in Ecclesiastes and you say, What am I doing all this for again? I mean, like just keep just keep rereading. My
2: favorite book, perhaps.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Keep rereading that because it is like it is an an ointment for an ambitious soul. And most of our listeners, they're here because they want to learn how to lead. And like the word of God helps to change our our compass towards ambition. God made you ambitious. He wants you to go do the things you were made to, to do and to be a masterpiece. But he also doesn't need you to do any of it. And right. when you, when you start realizing, you know, that your center is that he just wants to be your friend, that he just wants to be your father, that he just wants to help speak to your heart. And the more you can testify to that, uh, like God has shown up in just profound ways because I've been able to slow down. Uh, like I'm, i move i at a pretty fast pace, but I've been able to slow down in really important ways to listen, to listen to other people's stories, to, to pay attention, to, you know, end up. Given money to fundraisers for people who are sick more than I would have ever done before. I, I end up paying attention to, you know, uh, to, to other you know you know to other people who have been through loss uh, because it it's like oh wow I, I can see you now in a way that I just would have never uh, been able to before, and I think um, yeah it's been it's been r- really a, a pleasure to do that. Um, it's a silly little like example, but. Uh, after Jill died, I actually f- sort of felt like life slowed down so much. And now as I'm sort of returning back and I've gotten so much enthusiasm and hope about where the church is, some of what I talked about earlier in our time together was really around this idea of creating persuasive communities for the future. And that's really what I you know, want to devote the next number of years of my life to doing, because mm-hmm. I think there are new tools and new ways of thinking about that and new new patterns. It's not rocket science, but it's like we haven't quite figure that out and i, I want to be a, a small part of helping to decode our current moment but at the center of that i remember thinking at the, about the end of the matrix movie with neo you know sort of like he starts to unlock you know that he, he actually can't be killed by the bullets and so like death doesn't scare me now you um, know you know like it doesn't like well, walking through what jill went through and seeing her courage uh to, to go through some of those really really tough things um it's like wow, that was amazing. Well, I, next next week, next month, next year, it's just all a gift. Mm-hmm. So let's go have the the best time you can possibly have, and lead as faithfully as you can. Don't try to strive and and ambitiously build something because God doesn't need you to build anything. He just mm-hmm. wants your heart. And um, that's been you know some of the lessons I've been learning. And I just keep and I and I get it wrong often enough. And I had a lot of a lot of challenges this summer in certain certain ways. Uh, just, just realizing, you know, my my deep need for a savior, my deep need for, mm. you know, like my ambition was getting the best of me. And it's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta slow down again. So at the very end of the movie, you remember in the Matrix if you if you've seen it, you know, Neo's like, he's he's almost dodging these bullets because it's like everything has slowed down. So I feel like life is a bit more in slow motion for me, even as there's a lot of pace to it. It's like the things that would ordinarily bring a lot of anxiety. I'm like, you know what? it's really like, that's like the 67th worst thing that's happened to me this month. It doesn't really matter. You know?
2: it's like, <laughs> yeah. Do you think sometimes, and I, I can see this because you know in church, our faith gets fused with our work and also with our community. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the perfect storm as I think about it. Do you think sometimes we take it too seriously or take on burdens that God never intended us to bear?
1: A hundred percent.
2: Yeah. How have you seen that?
1: Well, I think that's what we're invited into in this in this season of pastoring. Yeah. Um, you know, you you've taken this journey yourself, and you've mm-hmm. talked about it pretty publicly. Yeah. Um, both having burned out at times, and then deciding to, you know, go create a company and not lead in a local church. And I know we've had enough private conversations where you're like, you sometimes feel conflicted about that because you sort of you sort of feel like. Um, a burden for local church leaders, which again, you know, for for the, for the listeners, like I know Carrie pretty well. And like, this man loves you, wants to see you succeed. Even, even feeling conflicted about, you know, running a communications company is that he, he would just as soon jump back in try to lead people to Jesus in a local church community. And I think that is a beautiful tension to manage in our side ourselves. And I feel the same way. Like, I'll, I'll keep running barn. I'll keep doing things. But like, if God calls me to do something else, I'll gladly lay that down to be whatever God is called to be faithful. In whatever God's calling me to do. So I think that that um, real courage to lead and to to try to do some things, but but try not to look at what other people are doing. And I want to say this without any cynicism or criticism, because I know how unique a local congregational model is. But. God doesn't need you to be successful to bring him, people to Him. He doesn't need a, He doesn't need a big church, a small church, a medium sized church. Uh, I think we're at an era where, if we if we were really honest with ourselves as pastors, we're not actually doing some of the things we're asking people to do. So,
2: <laughs> like inviting friends to church or building into people who don't know Christ, or, or, or yeah. like
1: if we said the, the, the if we said the core value of a Christian is to be a part of a weekly gathering, right. Most of us don't go to another gathering where we can just be who we are and mm. not not a performer, not a not a persuader, not a not a mm. professional. And like in this, I'll go to a really beautiful church, Pastor Jamie Miller, here in in Fort Worth, Texas. You know, he's asked me to speak a couple times or do things, and he's very sweet. Um, but I'm like, hey, I maybe someday, but right now, I'm just I'm just here. I I'm like I'm, I'm I just like, want to be Dave. I just want to be in the community, okay. and I think I have that longing right now. Yeah. And so, I, so the reason I say that is because if we're really honest, the expression of the church is really beautiful. People who work in Christian ministries, who are part of YWAM, who are on campuses at Christian colleges and universities, they're participating in the vibrancy of the church around the world. And I I love what God is doing through congregations and in congregational models, but it is not the only way that people experience Jesus. Mm. And if we're being honest, most that's true for us as pastors, because we're part of a broader community of of Christians who are doing this and so it's like it's okay that we're not going to another church as an as as a a lay person because we are actually part of the church. So I think this picture of what the church is today you know you look at people who are part of uh discipleship communities or who are on campuses or who are uh part of um you know kind of uh I- embedded embedded residential communities you know and 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 like like the church is really like alive and vibrant and, and even sort of some of the the reports that we hear from people around the world and, and you know, in, in non-Western cultures, like mm-hmm. the church is just exploding and God is on the move in, in places uh, that, you know, like it's it's just remarkable. And so I think we can really have a lot of confidence that God is up to some new things and we get to be one tiny voice in this great chorus of mm-hmm. what God is up
2: to. It's a great perspective. What other trends are you seeing in terms of churches that are growing again now versus churches that are maybe struggling a little bit more? We can talk about vibrancy, health, not just the external metrics, but what are some other trends that you're noticing when it comes to church growth, church decline, church health?
1: Well, I think uh, each church has its own story to tell. And I think you've, we've talked about this a little bit. Some are actually really booming by virtue of the number of people that seem to be engaged and that's to be celebrated. Um, um, some are really still kind of sputtering along, and that's okay too. Like that's God. God isn't honored by more people; He's honored by faithfulness. Hmm. So, you know, I think I think we we just have to keep resetting our metrics of success towards what is faithfulness, not as what and faithful, faithful and fruitful. But uh, sometimes fruitfulness doesn't necessarily show up in the way we would we would think. Oh, well, this is more people. And that's been a huge thing in the last four or five years. Our work with uh, with glue and this idea of, of of flourishing people. Are you helping people to grow in obviously their spiritual life, but also their relational well being, their uh, their financial and vocational well being? You know, their emotional and mental health. Um, you know, sort sort of are they becoming the John Ten Ten life and life to the full, more abundant people? And there's some really good ways to do that. Like, you know, we we actually have some tools, the Church Pulse, which mm-hmm. is a free assessment you can take. How are our people doing? And are we helping them to become even more f- faithful and fruitful in their lives? And so the churches that are really growing are, are rebuilding from the ground up um, in terms of the way they think about ministry, just so that it's not like, hey, we've got, a higher percentage of people this week than we did last week. And we're, you know, they're actually thinking, okay, how do we actually disciple people? Because at the center of some of our problems as the church in North America is that we haven't really discipled people uh, as deeply as we imagine. And the pandemic kind of helped to show that. My friend Mindy Caliguire said, you know, the pandemic, uh, her her metaphor for the pandemic was that uh, everyone was skinny dipping in the the surf and then uh, the tide went out and uh we were like uh, sort of naked and, and ashamed as we realized mm-hmm. like we're all you can see who is swimming without shoes. yeah exactly yeah. we're we're all a little bit more emotionally needy we're all a little bit more thin the, the the pretenses of what we imagined our life was built on uh were sort of stripped away and i think that's that's why we have it's at least part of the reason why we have a moment of spiritual openness is people are trying to rebuild their lives in a different way and we should be really cautious not to rebuild our churches in the old way. Oh, that's good. We need to rebuild our churches in a new way, just like people are trying to rebuild their lives in new ways. So if we are not able to go to the deep places to help people build deeper wells, dig deeper wells, I don't think we're going to be the places of of comfort and restoration. Let me just talk about one one study we did with Mops, uh, yeah. and that's called the MomCo. We looked at moms, uh, mothers who have children 18, 18 or under.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you know
1: what they said was their most We'll start with what the, what they like least about their church. Is no that it, idea. It, it, is that it doesn't support their emotional and mental health. Wow. That was number one criticism. What do you think they liked most about churches? And it was 63%, not even close to the second highest rated thing, which was like 30,
2: 32%. Yeah, again, I'm clueless. Small groups. Really?
1: Moms love community. Preaching and teaching was number five on the list, <laughs> 23% so moms need community more than they need more content now it doesn't mean that content is unimportant it just means the content has to support community and and so i think if we started to see ourselves as community facilitators how do we hear the testimony of other of other moms because they have an internal monologue all of us as human beings have an internal monologue you're beautiful today you're not beautiful today you're you're, you're insecure about these things whatever um you know you're you're you know, I think that's part of what I'm saying. My in, my internal monologue has really changed in the last five years because I lost my wife. It was the the worst thing I could have imagined, and I'm still here. God is still good. Yeah. He is still so faithful to me. Life is still so beautiful, and my interior my inter- in, interior monologue has changed fundamentally because of what the Word of God and friendships have done, and fr- the fr- the friendship of Jesus in these years. Now, if we could help to amplify my story alongside a chorus of other stories, moms who are saying, you know, I thought I was inadequate. I thought I wasn't a great mom. I thought I didn't have what it takes. And uh, in the company of other Christians who say, no, the story you're telling yourself is not true. And here's a better way to think about your life. So this is what the church can be. This is a place that we can help people build deeper wells because it's like all of a sudden, it's not that they're just looking at the internet. Like, how do I make sense of being a new mom? How do I make sense of, you know, all the inadequacies that I feel. Um, instead, they're turning to community and they're turning to Jesus and they're saying, no, we can actually be better moms. We can be better at what we do. And and this is one of the clear findings of the research is that while pastors want to help women in their communities, they want to help moms. Nine out of 10 pastors are men. Um, they don't quite get the mm-hmm. issues. They don't that, Like, and I've experienced this, they don't quite get the issues of singleness because most of them are men. Most of them are married men. And so you know they'll be up. I was I was at uh, mm-hmm. a church on on a, a Valentine's weekend, and they're giving out gift bags to all the married couples. You know, like hey, we love we love married couples. And some of my single friends and I were sitting there looking at each other, like, well, sucks to be us, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so yeah. so so pastors have a real task to figure out how do you speak to the 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 broad spectrum of people that are there and then how do you show up in a way that really doesn't tend to prefer one class of people the married folks Yeah, and
2: that that singleness is not some state of deficiency correct
1: yeah but but moms and this is what the study that mom co worked with us on is like boy they are uh, they are an activating agent when they they are like uh, a conduit for energy into other people so if you say guys here's what we want to go do they will mobilize and resource and explain They're going to be behind you. They're going to be the best evangelists for your church, for Jesus. And so, you know, how do you partner with moms to help Mm -hmm. them understand the masterpiece that their kids have been created to be? So you start to see some of the threads we've been Mm -hmm. pulling together. Helping young people, helping moms, helping parents figure out how their kids are wired in light of Jesus' message in the world is one of the great gifts you can give. And I promise you you will mobilize, you'll attract parents and families, if you just simply say we're not just here to kind of build a church attendance machine we're here to build mm-hmm. a masterpiece identification because jesus is is has made you to be something special in the world and he wants you to go serve him at a great sacrifice in the world and i'm just here to tell you the data says this is what gen z what young people are like they're waiting for they're hungry for they're that kind of waiting for community they're yeah.
2: waiting for connection you know it's interesting because scarcity drives value what is valuable Things that are scarce, right? That's true in life of the intangible things. That's also true financially.
1: Wide is the path, narrow is the gate.
2: <laughs> yeah. But you think about like 20 years ago, content was scarce, it was hard to get. And we were raised on a model of preaching. Community was everywhere. And community has taken a huge hit right. over the last 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, five years. And content has been exploding. So I totally get that moms are like, we have enough content. Like we know where to go. Yep. Uh, we can be very well fed. There is a million free Bible study plans, a million YouTube talks, like, you know, TED talks. Like we can go anywhere and get great stuff. What we're dying for is relationship, community. So you're talking about rebuilding your church along those lines, prioritizing things that are scarce.
1: Yeah, that's right. And
2: not, that, that doesn't mean you stop preaching. Correct. Because we still have to teach people how to think. We got to show them what to think, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's a, that's really helpful. Well, um, maybe
1: one little double click on that. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. preaching and teaching are really critical. Um, and and you'll never hear anything other than that the proclamation of the word that Jesus comes and walks among us. Like the preaching of the word is something sacred, special. It will never be replaced uh, in any time in human history. Um And we should just acknowledge that it's not the only rhetorical tool that people need to learn. So if you were trying to teach someone how to play the piano, for example, you don't just preach at them, you know, you, you have to sit down and they have to do some work. And I actually think that's the other thing I'm sort of referring to here is that to be a persuasive community, you need preaching, you need the homiletical tools, Hmm. you need Jesus to be proclaimed. It's the daily bread and you need. Other kinds of more didactic or structured thinking, because people need to know how to play their part in the great symphony of God's work in the world. They have to learn how to play the piano. So, when it comes to like relationships and dating, you know, let's just be honest, most people don't come every weekend. Even if you do a great sermon series, they're going to hear a little piece of it. So, people need some structure. They need, you you know, you've got to put some two by fours up in the buildings that they're living in. You've got to sort of see where all of this fits. And, and that is, I think, a great opportunity for us as, as a church community. So so, so moms, it's, it's like, it's not just community for any purpose. It's community so that they know how to live in this calling of motherhood in a biblical way, in a, in a way that says, here is what it means to be on mission with Jesus. And that's that's amplified through teaching and preaching, but it's not only uh, through preaching and teaching. So I think we, I, by the way, m- moms invite us uh, to a both-hand thinking that i think a lot of us at least as men i could speak for tend to be a little more either or thinking and i think moms are a powerful force in our in our church communities we actually see in the data some of the some of the idea that if you win the man you win the family it's it's actually more accurate to say if you if you get the mom you have you have the heart of the family you have the persuasive heart of the family that people look back to their moms as the much more uh, shaping influence on them in terms of faith. And that's not, that's a sad indictment on men in mm. some ways. But like even, even Paul in 2 Timothy says, I remember the faith of your, your mother and your grandmother. Crickets in terms of the, where the men show <laughs> now, up. What about
2: dad? Yeah. No, th- you know, this might be a few years old, but I remember the studies that say, who determines who buys a, the family vehicle? And you would think it's the guy, you know, car guy. No, it's the woman. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, this isn't going to work with car seats or this isn't going to work with three kids if we have a third kid. Right. And, and so adept salespeople kind of realize, okay, this guy thinks he's driving the decision, but she actually is. Exactly. So how do you do ministry? You've, you've already partially answered the question, but what does it look like to win the heart of a mom in a ministry then, knowing that you probably then have the family?
1: I think it's to facilitate great community. To ask for their input. I mean, we are in an era of personalization and of yes. of yeah, uh, right. of partici- participation. So, if your church is not a place of personalization and participation, you find that people will tune out because they think you're trying to like you know enroll them in your plan. So, I think I think uh, you know creating community, uh, creating structure for them to experience a godly community, giving giving boundaries. How that can can work, but but inviting them into the into the into the mix, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, again, I'm I'm convinced that we have so many resources in our communities um, and in our tradition to help people understand who they're made to be, mm-hmm. and and you know, like what makes them unique, and how we can you know deploy them on mission in the world, and that that's actually a, a, a incredibly salient question for parents, like how do I direct my kids to the right educational paths and the right. The right kind of developmental opportunities. If anything, we idolize our children in our society today. Lord. So, so we need a kind of Ecclesiastes style, you know, trying to have the best school, the best output, the best job for your kids is chasing the wind. So, stopping, stop bringing your own narrative to your kids' lives. That's part of the mm-hmm. part of the, the the deformation and the reformation of what it means to be a parent. And so, I think churches are critical to that because. The, you know the part of the reason we have a problem of discipleship with young generations is because we have a problem with the way the parents thought about you know what it means to be successful. like missions is much less viewed as uh, an important career, not because young people don't want to do great things in the world because their parents, said, hey, you know, like Shouldn't if you, yeah, you should, yeah, why You're would you want to be a doctor? Right? Why do you want to go to Africa? You know, <laughs> or why do you want to go on, uh, you do these other kinds of crazy things? Like you should get a good job. And then maybe someday if you want to, you know, go on, a, you know, tr- so, so parents have, have really deformed some of their, their kids. And I just look at the mirror. I feel like I've, you know, I've got all the PowerPoint slides. I've got all the answers of how to raise a kid and, in, in you know in faith and like so I'm like I've made plenty of mistakes so you oh, know yeah. that we're all, yeah. we're all we're all we're all sort things. of guilty as charged mm-hmm. but I think I think this idea of helping moms and dads say we're going to help you provide like this is a good example of a pedagogical you know how we teach people you can preach your way but you but what if we had a structured way of of helping young people figure out their gifts and callings and parents had a lot to gain uh from being a part of a christian community where you are actually like Discipled into who you are made to be in the world, uh, that kind of personalization, and you are a participant in gospel mission. You know, you look at the Book of Acts and it's like we're out there in the world taking great journeys for God, trying to figure out where you know where God is calling us next. Uh, the Book of Acts is these human stories of people on mission with Jesus. Um, you know, I, I think I think this generation wants to be inspired by that kind of uh, you, you you know call to to the world, and it may not look like you know missions of old but it might look something like missions that we've that we you know we need we need more of that kind of vision for the great adventure that it is to follow Jesus
2: you've long been an advocate of churches getting behind the people that they serve in terms of helping them figure out their ministry in the workplace their vocation their calling i'm hearing that theme Come up again. Anything else you want to you want to say about that? Because I think I think that's really good. You know, when I was a pastor for twenty years, it's very easy, you know, to sort of have a come 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 and see mm-hmm. approach. Come to me. Come yeah. to me. I'll equip you. But you know, you sit in a pew every week, and I do, and you know, it's a very different place when you're sitting there. And I, I have a great pastor as well. Jeff's doing a fantastic job, but. You know, I can't help but think if I was doing it over again, I might do it differently. Any more thoughts about how churches can equip lay people to realize their calling?
1: If you're a pastor who thinks you've really got it nailed uh, when it comes to equipping people for for ministry in the workplace, I would ask you to really think again. We find Um, so few leaders who are really doing that well. And so I just just want to be be truthful and honest about that. So the
2: data is saying, eh. No,
1: I mean, most Christian business leaders... They're just like I go to church because it's what's expected of me, and they they get out of it what you know what they need. They 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 you know there, there's there's again I'm I'm not saying any of this cynically. It's just that I see a picture of the community of Jesus, these apostolic leaders who are entrepreneurs, these others who are in in, in the world, people who are teaching in public schools, and who are in. You know the, the the trades, and who have a vision for how God has wired them, and that they're being uh, equipped and trained to th- to to go out and do work, to be pastors in their own community, or spiritual influencers, uh, to tell their stories better. And the weight of the data is that most churches just really have a hard time. So we we hear from business leaders and entrepreneurs, and those in sort of the faith and workspace all the time who say, "What could we do to help?" churches do better at this and then we hear pastors who say we're already doing it
2: (laughs) just like yeah
1: no no we got like we got we got this guy and he's on our board and he's a lawyer and we got this guy on our board and he's a you know developer and we and it's like doesn't it sound interesting that like the people that you put on your board and as elders like you tend to think of them because of what they're accomplished out in the world and you you want them to help you know, balance your books or be an advisor because you got legal issues within the church. And so if we're being honest, sometimes we're we're pulling people into the Death Star because we think they can provide us with, you know, with they can provide us something. And again, I I don't mean this cynically. I just if if the weight of all of the voices that we are hearing at Barna, because we're a good like intermediary, we're trying to translate across these different portions of the church. If the weight of all of these entrepreneurs and Christian business leaders are saying church, please do this better and if the weight of all the pastors and leaders that we talk to are saying we're already killing it, <laughs> there's something lost in translation yeah and and so yeah. what about doing a survey where you simply say, hey, where are you guys working? what could we do to help equip you in your industries? I bet you if you try to draw a pie chart if you're you know if you work at a local church, if you try to draw a pie chart on the back of a napkin, what percentage of the people are working in different industries? What percentage of people are, are retired? What percentage of people are working from home? What percentage of people uh, have a good sort of integration of faith and work? Is there a sacred-secular divide that's happening within their, within their uh, mental space? Do they understand their spiritual gifts and how that gets applied out into the workplace? Do they are they vocationally oriented towards helping their kids understand what they should do in the world and, and the right, the right size of these things? This is all part of this theme of vocational discipleship yeah. that we have talked about quite a bit. Thanks for asking. And so I think, there's a, I think there's a real, you know, just the best way I could ask a leader is like, hey, if you just talk to Christian business leaders in your community, the only thing I will say is I don't think the Christian business leaders understand what it's like to lead in a church where you're responsible for everything, but you control nothing. <laughs> and I understand having grown up in the church, my dad's a very, very effective pastor. And he, you know, like, the, like it, the church is not a business. The church does not operate on the principles of like growth principles that, you know, business leaders are like, well, if we just did this, this, this. So, so I do acknowledge that Christian business leaders can have a, a, a mindset that's like, well, if we just did this, 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 it would all work out. But I'm just asking leaders to say, if it's possible that these Christian business leaders are telling us, and I've heard this now for several decades, that the church isn't working in the way they think it could. It's not they're just critiquing you. They're asking you to imagine a different and better way to be the church. And that, that's like, like just like moms need the church to be a place of community, Christian business leaders and those in the workplace need the church to be a place of community for them to work out how to live this. And if you changed your thinking and said, just what could like, you know the classic kennedy quote like ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country ask not what your congregation can do to build your church you know your your board your volunteer core like yes there's all those things that are important roles to fill but ask not what these people can do for you but what they can do for the kingdom of jesus out in the world and um you know the very nature of a, of a the very nature of a congregation is we congregate to be separate from the world. And that is a great you know, place of like, we need to be formed differently. But I'm just, I think, I think there's a real invitation that these leaders are are offering us. These people who are working in the workplace, in the marketplace, to think differently about, about what a church does and how it, how it forms them for life and mission in the world.
2: So I want to ask a few more questions, lightning round, if we right. can, as we wrap up any other data, that's really got your eyes open and that you're focused on as we head into a whole new year.
1: I'm doing a lot of work on perceptions of Jesus and why we keep Jesus in sort of our sort of human-sized boxes. And, you know, he he often looks a lot like us. We make him in our own image. Uh, so I've been working uh, quite a bit on on that. Like, what is, what is Jesus perceived to be and how do we actually free him from—
2: The Americanized, Westernized yeah, Jesus. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it turns out Jesus is— he promises that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So as we free Jesus, He frees us to be all we can be. And oh. so we're finding quite a bit of of, uh, of things based on that. I think that's pretty pretty fun. Um, you know, we're we're also trying. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording. Just it's it's less about a trend we're seeing, but more how we're thinking about the trends. We've been we've been working on making our data more bite sized, more more video based. We're call, we're calling it Barna Trends. Um, and we'll have some some things to talk about that in in the coming in the coming months in terms of of ways that barn is sort of rethinking how we do how we do content how you
2: package and get your mm-hmm. information yeah. out mm-hmm. there yeah, yeah we're rethinking that as well um i mean the blog isn't what it used to be i still enjoy long form content long form podcasting but yeah short bites of video we're yeah. uh, we're we're both making some big changes in yeah. that area yeah and i as think
1: well. i think then r- you know it's just seeing the um the power of gamified content mm-hmm. of a journey you're asking people to take thinking about you know what we can learn from the, the sort of the the developer uh, like app developer video game developer world
2: people love progress man yeah
1: and so just recognizing there's a, a way of thinking about the, the journey people are we're inviting people to take is there more creative ways we could be thinking about that mm. um i think that's a and the, the the visual world that we're living in, um, we we've, we continue to do quite a bit of work on this sort of spiritual open audience, which we've talked about, and and how to have prepare people for really meaningful conversations in an era of spiritual openness. People want to be able to talk about their faith, and so we need to give them tools to listen without judgment, to ask the Holy Spirit to join us, to not force conclusions, but to also be really, you know, c- convicted about about the need to talk about Jesus and people are hungry to do that.
2: It's kind of clear, but open, right? That whole idea that I know what I believe, but I'm also not going to force it on you. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to probe. I'm going to be open to your worldview. And, and I think, you know, in this age too, when you, when I think about what's effective, at least in my context, in terms of, um, you know, post-Christian context, it's not setting up the straw man argument. It's creating the steel man. Like, these, these people are not stupid. Right. They're very smart. They're very intelligent. Perhaps they haven't thought through things at a deep enough level that it's going to be a, a convicting worldview. But to take their views seriously, to really honor them and not insult them and believe that they're somewhat intelligent. Yeah, right. right?
1: And I've come to, even, even though it's not my journey, uh, interviewing a lot of people who have deconverted or deconstructing their faith, we're, we're doing a lot of work on faith deconstruction, and it's it's like I, it's not what do you see there uh a huge percentage of people say it's about a quarter of all americans say they've deconstructed the faith of their childhood it's younger people are more likely to say that's true of them um i think um it's sort of different than just regular doubt like whether god is real uh they're sort of saying you know is, is there a business model underneath this you know what what was my christian school background like why do we uh, you know, learn certain things about the world that just don't seem to square with, with reality. Um, Mm. I, um, I think memory is a really interesting thing, like the, the, the neuroscience of, of how memories change as we pull them up. So even, even in that, as we study people telling their story and their backstory, we have to acknowledge that people sometimes remember things accurately. Well, they, they, they always think they're remembering them accurately, but, But when you pull up a memory and and sort of analyze it, it changes every time you remember it. Yeah, There's like quite a bit of neuroscience about that, Mm -hmm. how how the the Mm -hmm. science of memory. Um, And so people will look back on their conversion experience and say, I was emotionally manipulated to become a Christian. Um, You know, the chord progression, the music was just right, the lights were out. And they actually look back on that and they're like, what? Did Jesus really talk to me or was I just, you know, feeling it? And um, was it just a vibe? And uh, and so, you know, we have to sort of convert people—heart, mind, body, and soul—is some of the stuff that I'm sort of describing earlier. Is like we have to we have to give people an emotional connection to the Lord. We have to give them an intellectual and 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 way of thinking about their work and their their life and and what it means to be a Christian. We have to give them a relational context. You know, like there there's there's more to being converted than just you know, sort of s- saying the sinner's prayer. And I think that's a huge opportunity for the church.
2: Yeah. We've been talking a lot about overall ministry and approaches to ministry. Anything in church finances or even AI or anything that you've got your eyes on? As the um, year in opens? AI, I
1: think it's a, a really uh, fun and interesting, you know, I've seen some of the content you're putting out that I think is really solid, which is let's use see it as a tool, uh, but also pay, pay close attention. You know, m- most of the the weight of our data is suggesting that people have uh, quite a bit of skepticism about it. Um, About one in 10 adults say they've used it often, but so it's still not a very common usage. Yeah, that's a
2: pretty low adoption in the church world. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Uh, But they hold mixed feelings about AI. Um, 29% say they don't trust it. Um, uh, 35% say I'm curious about it. Uh, 21% say I'm fascinated by it. But I think it's gonna be a huge new wave. You know, you look at sort of just digitization, um, mobile technology, social media, you know, you know, smartphones, we're at a new kind of inflection point, I think, with with content. Uh, one of my friends, Mark Miller, had this really interesting observation that he thought that, you know, God sometimes uses uh, these, these kinds of um, trends to humble us and to say you know you you weren't all that and he he was like i wonder if ai is sort of our way of uh, of god's way of sort of saying um our our idolatry of content and our ability to create is not just about being human it's about you know now now the now the algorithms can do that and so is there something about our idolatry of content our idolatry of cre- of being able to be creators now ai is not doing what humans can do in almost all the, the really generative, brand new, you know, truly original pieces of of art and thinking, but it is making it really simple to do what was incredibly complex before. And and um, you know, again, I think there's some really interesting both theological implications, um, practical implications of how we build our communities. Again, even some of these questions of building persuasive communities is going to be more difficult uh, in an era of AI. Uh, people are going to have many more, you know, if we, if we, the gospel according to YouTube, we you thought that was challenging. Just wait till the gospel according to AI, you know?
2: Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been a user of chat GPT for well over a year now and I'm noticing I'm getting lazy and I'm still, if it has my name on it, I've written it, you know, even with podcast interview questions, chat GPT is pretty decent. Like yeah. it making me think, but I'm like, it's almost like that debate remember in elementary school, are you allowed to use calculators or not? And the teachers were like, no, not until this age, because they want you to figure out in your brain, this is how multiplication, this is how addition, subtraction, division works. Division was always a hard one for me, not a mathematician. But anyway, you know, it was like, no, you need to learn these skills. Now, I've used a calculator every day of my life that I've had to do any math since I was, I don't know, 14 or 15. But I wonder if it becomes like that. And then is it a necessary first principle skill for you to continue intellectually, to keep your agency, to keep your creativity, to keep some semblance of, of self in there and even yeah. openness to the Holy Spirit? Or are you just to defer all that to a set of prompts or whatever is next in AI? Like, I, I think it raises some really great questions because I think it could result in a lot of intellectual laziness yeah. on the part of those of us who create.
1: I'm on the board of a university and I think a really helpful conversation we had recently was let's let the tools do the tools that help us avoid busy work uh and then make sure that the places where we're really trying to advance student achievement and development and learning we we say these are these are off limits for for chat gpt right. or, and ai
2: so do do the hard creative work correct. and then let it sort out your calendar no, for yeah,
1: correct you. now it's, it's mm-hmm. simpler said than done yeah but I think that idea. So I, I, I think I think it's true that our society and Gen Z doesn't. No one likes busy work for the sake of it. Although we could also say there are sort of virtues in doing certain things for for the purpose of how it changes our relationship to the work. So sometimes busy work has, you know, chopping wood or you know, you you you, you that's maybe not even defined as busy work, but like running the long form you know calculations like i i i am a firm believer that people use the tools that are available to them to make their lives as livable as possible to be you know like we're mm-hmm. a highly adaptable species and so i think chat is is here to stay and it's going to oh, be yeah. it's going to be like t- tools that are going to make our lives infinitely easier and we're going to find other ways of creating you know uh roadblocks and barriers and other things that are easy so i just think that as we even think about how to train people um like imagine if if at your church you had a a short series of talks on the difference between real and fake and authentic and into authentic and original and unoriginal and truth versus error or falsehood and then recognizing that you know young people actually they're like the human eye is pretty discerning not not just like AI generated images but like what do we how do we actually understand what is real what's fake in our world and that that's an example of some. You know, you you may or may may not preach that. It might not be a sermon, but it could be sort of a a one-on-one class where you're saying, we're going to help this generation think about where do we deploy these tools? How do we think about technology? How do we think about real versus fake? How do we actually understand when when we say someone's really authentic? What does that mean? And why do we sometimes feel like someone's a little inauthentic? Yeah, at
2: our church, I'm, I'm doing a message in a week or two after this podcast releases on relationships and AI what what is the difference between a real human relationship and a virtual relationship or a chatbot relationship or a sexbot relationship or all of that where mm-hmm. you know and this isn't in the future this is actually happening right now you can have relationships with people who aren't real mm. what happens to your soul what happens to you what how did god design human interaction like yep. those are all very real questions that people are now struggling with or need to struggle
1: with. Yeah. And I think that gets to the heart of the Christian community is helping to identify what does it mean to be human?
2: Exactly. And
1: in in light of what Jesus has, has said with the revelation of God and through scripture and the wisdom of, of the church through the centuries.
2: Well, anything else before we wrap up? This has been great. It is so fun to do a podcast in person with you. I mean, so many real David Kinnaman, (laughs) the real Carrie Newhoff together in Dallas.
1: And now we should announce that this is just an AI-generated conversation <laughs> where where my voice and your voice have been put through through the algorithms and it just turns out that you you think you've been listening to
2: us. Dude, it's so real now. It's crazy. Like, I've seen some of these. I was telling you about a friend who who sent me an AI-generated thing of him speaking French. He doesn't speak French. And I'm like, it's so convincing. But this is... The real Kerry and the real David. (laughs) Hey, uh, people are going to want to connect with you, David. So where where are you online these days? Tell us about the Barna Group and where they can find all of your latest good stuff.
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, we're uh, shifting a lot of our emphasis in the coming months and years towards not just describing what's happening, but really providing solutions and examples of best practices, um, insights to action. So um, that's at barna.com. Uh, we would love to invite people to be subscribers to our Barna Access, where you get all the best of Barna. Uh, there'll be some new tools in terms of the, tr- the trends, subscription sort of little bite-sized pieces as well that people can be watching for. Um, and um, yeah, I'm uh, available at tw- Twitter and Instagram and mm-hmm. you know and the rest. And um, I'm you know really excited about what's next for for our company and for how God is is uh, orienting us towards really trying to figure out the domains of digital discipleship. What does it mean to build persuasive communities uh, under the light of uh, of
2: the gospel? As always, David, thank you. It's been great. My pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Man, I love that one. Hey, we have a whole lot of episodes that I've done live in person on the road, and this one's also on YouTube. So we have a growing YouTube channel. I think the next few are all um, filmed in person. Anyway, regardless of whether we film it in person or via Riverside. A lot of you are like, what technology do you use? It's Riverside. You're going to find it on my YouTube channel. So if you prefer to watch or you want to share that, make sure you check it out. It's just Carrie Newhoff on YouTube. You can find it there. So we want to thank our partners for this episode, Westfall Goldman. If you want a generous church, I partner with Craig Rochelle, Chris Hodges, and others. To create a masterclass for you, you can go to advance.westfallgold.com or click the link in the description of this episode. And then senior leaders and executive pastors, teaching pastors, campus pastors, join me and Reggie Joyner and others, Rich Velotis, at Rethink Leadership in April. You can go to conference.rethinkleadership.com to register today. Well, uh, coming up, we got a lot of wonderful things. And by the way, we've also got show notes. You can go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 623. Also have transcripts with uh, links to everything we talked about in the episode. We are going to continue with part three of the Church Trends series. And I'm going to sit down with political scientist Ryan Burge. I am loving his research. He's written a few books including some books on the nuns. And we're going to talk about the rise of the nuns. Christianity, is it becoming a luxury good? The threat to democracy with the decline in religion and why the nuns are very reachable.
0: Here's an excerpt. So my understanding of what, what non-religion is, is changing pretty significantly in the last couple of years. And, and really what I'm zeroing in on, especially in the last year or two, I wrote a post for my Substack called religion as a luxury good. yes. Which, yeah. which went viral, quote unquote, whatever that means, like not like millions of clicks, but, you know, a lot of clicks for me. And so I make this argument that religion has become part and parcel of people who have done everything right, quote unquote. And what I mean by that is college education, middle class income, married with children. If you check those four boxes, also called the golden path, that's what a lot of conservative like economists mm. call that the golden path. If you met, if you meet those criteria, your chance of having good income, you know, good outcomes is much higher. You're much more likely to go to church. This is what people don't understand: is like the more education you have, the more likely you are to go to church. The more the the, the ideal combination of of income and education are college degree for your college degree, make between sixty and hundred thousand dollars a year. So for me, what we're seeing to me is the haves and the have-nots are growing larger and larger every mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. I think this is a serious problem, both pastorally, but also from a social science perspective. Also coming up on the Church Trends series, Brady Shearer, John Mark Comer.
2: And then we go back into regular mode with John Ortberg, Kara Powell, Adam Hamilton, Craig Grischel, Jamie kern Lima. Uh, Jenny Allen, and a whole lot more coming up. Well, if you're like me, you're always looking for ways to stay informed. And about a year ago, I launched something brand new, my on-the-rise newsletter. And I have a blast putting this together. You apparently have a blast reading it because we hear about it all the time. And it's just a curation of maybe half a dozen things that I have found interesting that week. I would love for you to check it out. We talk about trends. We also talk about things like, you know, the original Taylor Swift or Google website. I'll send you a link to that stuff. Or I'll show you the best restaurants in America and the best sandwiches. Or we can talk about um, some obscure facts that I've discovered. Anyway, it's great sermon research it's also, I think, there's so much content out there. How do you find the best stuff? I hope you really enjoy it. I'll also link to TED Talks I'm enjoying and more. So, bringing the best content from around the web, you can join about a hundred thousand leaders who enjoy it every Friday in their inbox. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You can get started today for free. That's ontherisenewsletter.com. Man, thank you so much, everybody. Really appreciate you being here. If you're new. Hit us up. Hey, it's a new year, new patterns. Number one, subscribe. Number two, shout me out on social. I'm Carrie Newhoff. Tell me what you loved about the episode or what you'd love to see. And we'll catch you next time on the podcast. And I hope our conversation today helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.